Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. A bit of a bit of a quiz to start the show. This is called What's the Connection? Hurricane Harvey in Texas, Bangladesh, a third of the country underwater from monsoon rains, Hurricane Irma, the strongest storm ever recorded in the Caribbean. Then there's Malcolm Turnbull wanting to keep the Liddell power station open. It's the oldest coal-fired power station in Australia. And Turnbull wants to keep it open even after the owners want to close it down. The connection? Well, I guess you've figured it out already. Of course, it's climate change. I'm John Langer. And that's the focus of the show this week on Communication Mixdown, climate change and communication. Simon Torak is a specialist in science communication, and he's part of a team of science communicators with an organization called Scientel. And his work is essentially about distilling and summarizing technical information for non-scientific audiences. I spoke to Simon in November last year, just after the election of Donald Trump, and we talked about ways that best communicate the science of climate change. And given the extreme weather events of the past few weeks in different parts of the globe, what he had to say, I think, has even more relevance today. Your recent work is focusing on communicating the connection between extreme weather events and climate change. And we've seen lots of these in Australia over the past few years Just to give us some context, what's been happening in the area in terms of scientific work? Well, as you mentioned, it is shaping up to be the the warmest year on record globally. And the influence of human activities on those global temperatures and other aspects of the climate have been known about for a long time. And we've been able to talk about those links between human activities and and global warming and the changes to the climate for for some time. That is something that all scientists, pretty much um, all climate scientists are on the same page about. Now, where things become tricky is when we talk about the human attribution of extremes in the weather and climate. So we, we tend to experience changes in the climate through extreme weather. So we have a, you know, a cyclone or a severe storm, uh, some sort of storm surge at the coast to, to cause flooding. And often the media asks the question, has that been caused by climate change? And up until recently, scientists were, could feel confident saying, well, we'd expect to see more of these sorts of events due to human-induced climate change, but we can't pin the blame on this specific event yet. 
Now, the science has developed and the computing power has developed to the extent where we can now look at individual climatic extremes, heat waves, droughts, severe storms, and talk about whether those would have occurred if we hadn't seen human emissions of, uh, of greenhouse gases. And we can now say, well, that the, the, the odds of that extreme event happening wouldn't have happened if we didn't have humans emitting carbon dioxide, whereas the chances of it happening due to human activities is very high, 80 90%. Part of your argument, is, as I understand it, is that extreme weather conditions, as you say, there are much more. You can attribute them to specific things to do with climate change. That's not being communicated with ordinary people in a way that allows them to make sense of things. That's right. And there's various reasons for that. As, as I mentioned, it's, it's fairly recently, the last few years, that the science has been able to do that. So some commentators in, in the media and, and out in, in the general public aren't aware of the, the developments in the science. There's also obviously political aspects and, uh, and ideology that, that uh, is, needs to be factored in in communicating the, these changes in climate because our response to those changes uh, it often involves decisions that, uh, that come down to politics. So, of course, climate has always changed. In Australia, we're renowned to have a climate of, of droughts and flooding rains, but what we're experiencing now is more droughts and more flooding rains. And we can look at individual floods and droughts and heat waves, as I mentioned, and now model those with computer modelling, basically run a computer model many, many times over and over, do it once with human activities um, factored into the modelling, then do it without human activities involved, and we can then compare those sorts of model runs and come up with the probability of human activities influencing those extreme events. And scientists now are confident in saying that a specific heat wave or flooding event has been due to climate change, to human activities leading to climate change. And you're basically saying, I mean, I, maybe I'm simplifying the argument and I'm simplifying it for myself as well, that those sorts of connections are not being communicated in a way that ordinary people can actually understand. They're being obfuscated by, say, political ideologies, by media commentators, and those kinds of, I suppose, inter intervening factors. The, the problem really comes down to the communication of that. So uh, when we're talking about extreme events in the media, we need to look at, uh, has the science been done? We can't jump to blame human activities for every weather event that occurs. Mm -hmm. But scientists now can look at those events, model them with uh, complicated simulations of the climate system and say what the causes of those extreme events are. Sometimes it can take days, weeks um, to do those studies, but we can do them a lot faster now than we could 10 or so years ago. I guess the mythological trope, as it were, of, of Australia is it is a sunburnt country, flooding rains, winds, windswept plains, and sometimes you hear people saying it, even back as Tony Abbott used to say, uh, it's always been like that. And how do you... How do you overcome that in fact one of the things you mentioned in your uh, in I'm talking about an article that you 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 wrote with some other people in the conversation you've actually cited a couple of studies that were done in Australia which very specifically said these extreme conditions are related to climate variables it was really not looking at uh, it wasn't a scientific study on extremes it was more a look at the communication of where the science is at and yet yeah, there have been studies done um, on recent heat waves in Australia to look at 
what are the causes of, of the heat waves. And, and of course, there are both natural and human contributions to, to any weather event. But we now can say, scientists doing these studies now can say, this event is very unlikely to have occurred if it weren't for the human activities. In other words, human activities uh, are very likely to have caused a particular extreme weather event like a heat wave. Let's just go a little bit further, and again, referring to your article, and I'm hoping we're going to have a, a website where we can put up your reference to your paper. In that paper, you say the scientists are able to communicate with each other. It's a little bit more difficult to co- uh, communicate with people who are, have a non-scientific background. You make mention of four guidelines that would help in that communication. Can you... Go, go through those with us. So the advice we uh, we talk about in the paper is is focusing on what we we do know. So uh, so starting off by by explaining the, the science that we do know, we are very confident in in um, talking about human attribution of, of global changes, global temperatures, regional changes in in temperature and rainfall. So we should be sure that we talk about those things that scientists, climate scientists around the world are very sure of. Uh, so focusing on what we do know uh, without worrying too much about doing things that scientists tend to do, and that is talk about what we don't know and the caveats to what we do know, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of certainty around the things that we, we do know. That, that word itself, certainty, is another thing that we flag in our paper. Uh, the use of the word uncertainty in science tends to relate to the range of possible futures that uh, that climate models project for us to make decisions about the future. Now, that range of possibilities t- tends to be referred to as the, the scientific uncertainty. But in plain English, the word uncertainty means, well, we still don't know. And that's not at all the case when it comes to climate science. There's a lot that we do know about and that there is a lot of confidence in, a lot of certainty in. There's other sort of standard things in, uh, about communication that we talk about in this paper, things like using metaphors to, uh, to help illustrate complex science concepts coming up with metaphors to explain some of the complicated science that, that scientists are doing is, uh, is important as well. This was something that you were, you were in the article you mentioned is using phrases which people, I mean, these are common phrases that people use, things like loading the dice towards basically rolls towards more extreme events, stacking the deck, those kinds of phrases allows you to kind of explain things in, I guess you could call it, you know, non-scientific kinds of ways of talking. Yeah, that, that, that a good couple of, of examples to talk about uh, how the atmosphere works. Because, of course, a, an extreme event occurs in an atmosphere that is now being changed by human activity. So a way we can describe that is that when we have a an extreme weather event, whether that happened or not, it is obviously was, was due to a lot of natural occurrences, but what human activities has done is is tune the atmosphere to be more in favour of having a heat wave or an extreme weather event. And that's why we suggest a couple of things about you know loading the dice or, or uh, having a weighted coin that's going to come up heads mm-hmm. in a row over and over again um, yes. because of the weighting that uh, human activities has given to the, the atmosphere. Other thing that, sorry, the other thing that I thought was an interesting, uh, also interesting guideline is to you've suggested that y- you should try and avoid a language which suggests a kind of hopelessness. I think it's really important that uh, that we do look at this as as uh, something that needs to be managed. It's about managing risks and and taking action to prepare for the changes. And that's one of the reasons we think that we we need to be clearer about the causes of extreme events is so that we can prepare for and adapt to the changes that we're already seeing and that we're going to see a lot more of in the future. Uh, if we know what's causing them and that humans are contributing to the increased number of, of storms and so on, then on the one hand we can 
do more to reduce the problem by, by uh, thinking about where our energy comes from and, and making other changes in behaviour. But importantly, we also need to adapt to those changes knowing that we're likely to see more of them due to the human influence. I want to finish our, our conversation with a, a curly one. This has been called, and this is, goes back to Donald Trump, it's been called the post-truth era. And I'm sure you've been contemplating this as well. And some people say this is one of the reasons why Trump was so successful, that he could say stuff that was absolutely a lie. In fact, somebody in the United States, some some fact-checking organization said that 70% of what he was talking about was actually a lie. Even if you make the claims that science knows about these things, how do you overcome in the communication getting over that post-truth perspective. Yeah, I, I guess if we knew the answer to that, we'd be a lot further down the track in doing something about climate change. Uh, but perhaps what I can uh, offer is that the, uh, people need to question where information is coming from uh, and, and whether that, that information has been tested and challenged before it's been published. Is it someone's opinion or is it based on facts that have been collected and measured, uh, computer simulations based on basically, you know, standard theories of, of, of and, and how physics and the world works, um, you know, or is it something that you've heard down the pub? So uh, so questioning where information comes from is, is really important. Um, I guess there has been a real erosion of trust in expert opinion uh, with, with perhaps a lot of people not understanding what that expert opinion is, is based on. As I said, it's, it's based on facts and, and research and people who've, whole teams of people who've dedicated their lives to understanding things. So that has to be given more weight than, uh, than a, an opinion uh, based on, you know, someone who's had half an hour with an Excel spreadsheet um, because they, uh, they've had a particular idea. There's, there's obviously, you know, scepticism and, uh, and, and challenge is, is part of science and that's important but what we're seeing is an erosion of that uh, trust in, in expert opinion and, and uh, I guess a, a misappropriation of that term scepticism and, and, and seeing what's really more like anti-science and, uh, and anti-information having an impact. That was Simon Torok and uh, he is a specialist in science communication, and he's part of a research team that works on the ways to better communicate the science of climate change and extreme weather events to ordinary folks like us who probably don't know a heap about it, at least the science part of it. We're Communication Mixed Down. Join Ruminations on Thursday, September 14 at 12pm to 1pm as we head down the river to South Bank. For this special broadcast, we'll be handing over the mic to people currently experiencing homelessness and staying in crisis accommodation. So tune in on Thursday, September 14, between 12 and 1pm, as Ruminations goes to Southbank and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. Over the past decade or so, Al Gore has become something of a warrior for the action on climate change. Kim Borg works with the Sustainable Development Institute at Monash University, and she's not so sure. So let's turn our attention to Al Gore. 
As most of you know, Al Gore was majorly involved in a documentary film on climate change called An Inconvenient Truth. It was a huge success seen by millions, and the film even won an Academy Award in 2006. Now he's back on center stage with another climate feature-length doco called An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. And again, it's expected that millions will see it, but... The question is, to what end? Inconvenient truth, but what about inconvenient action? Kim Borg is a research officer at Behaviour Works Australia, which is part of the Sustainable Development Institute at Monash University, and she's been thinking about the gap between seeing and doing in relation to what she calls the big issue documentary. Hello, Kim. Hello, well, let, you better get, get us started by giving us a few names of some of these documentaries that you called the big issue documentaries. What are they? What's their What's their titles, and what were they about? Okay, so I just want to point out to start with, uh, there's sort of a difference between what we see as our traditional documentary, which is really about educating and increasing knowledge, versus what I'm calling these big-issue advocacy documentaries, which are really trying to change our behaviour. They, they have an agenda and they're trying to achieve change. So some of the examples uh, that I talk about are things like Supersize Me, which is focused on fast food consumption, um, The Cove, which is looking at protecting threatened wildlife, um, and Forks Over Knives, which is uh, talking about nutrition again and trying to encourage people to adopt a whole food plant-based diet. Inconvenient Truth is another example of this, which again, we're trying to, or they were trying to encourage people to reduce their carbon footprint. And uh, some of these documentaries, as you're giving the names, they have been on SBS, they've been around a bit. Uh, you know, I've seen them, actually seen them on television. One of the uh, strengths of these films is their ability to stretch far and wide. And your argument is that these kinds of documentaries do have some success in getting people to change the way they see an issue and then do something about their behavior, that is to change their behavior. But the success, your argument basically, is the success is fairly short-lived. Yeah, so it's it's very encouraging when we look at these once-off studies that uh, ask people to view the film and then ask them about their knowledge, their attitude, their behavioural intention and even their behaviours straight after viewing a film where a lot of people are really engaged and they're encouraged to do something straight afterwards. But then when we've looked at some of the rare follow-up studies, it seems like this behaviour is really a once-off or it sort of fades over time if the film is the only source of change. So if people see the film and decide, I'm going to do something differently, they might do something in the short term, but then it fades out unless something else is happening in the background to really push for a long-term behaviour change. They did some, some work on the Gore film, The Inconvenient Truth, and uh, they did some follow-up studies. Tell us what happened with that. So uh, there's two studies that I talk about specifically um, in the article. So one of them is where they, they got a bunch of people, they sat them down, they asked them to watch the film, complete a survey to talk about uh, their level of knowledge, their willingness to change. And as I said before, immediately after watching the film, people reported an increase in knowledge, an increase in environmental concern, and an increase in their willingness to act. 
But then when they resurveyed these people one month later, their commitment levels had basically dropped back to pre-film, uh, the pre-film experience. Mm. Uh, in another example, they took a novel approach. So instead of asking people what they're going to do, which can actually be a little bit different from what people actually do, uh, they, they looked at the purchase of carbon offsets in suburbs, near film uh, near cinemas that were showing the film mm. and they noticed an mm. increase in the purchase of carbon offsets uh, I think two months after the film came out mm. which was great again it looks like people are taking some sort of action afterwards but then when they looked at the data one year later when their carbon offsets were due for renewal we didn't see that same blip that same uh, 50% increase that we saw the year before so it looks like people film-induced purchasing behaviour was really a once-off and wasn't a genuine long-term behaviour change. There is a film that you uh, looked at called Blackfish, which I hadn't heard of, and it's it was a big issue documentary, and it was more successful. What, tell us about that. So Blackfish is one of my favourite examples because the filmmaker has actually said that she never intended to tell people what to do or how to feel in response to the film. It didn't have that specific what we call call to action. Just tell but us what the film, the real... Black, sorry, just the Blackfish. Oh, sorry, what, yeah, about yeah. Blackfish. Yeah, so just... Blackfish... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, so Blackfish, was... um... Who is the Blackfish? Blackfish is actually uh, a colloquial name for orcas or killer whales. And this film focuses on the life of Tilikum, which is a, a famous uh, sea world orca. Mm. Uh, and it, it sort of follows his life and his role in the death of a trainer, Dawn Bradshaw. And it really focuses on whether whether it's right or the, really the life that these orcas experience when they're living their whole time in captivity. It shows sort of a comparison to orcas behaving in the wild versus the way orcas behave in captivity. And it really it draws on your heartstrings. You really feel for these animals by watching it. Mm. The result of it, as as uh, you've written, is uh, pe- people stopped going to SeaWorld to, and and they, they yeah. eventually stopped having orcas. Yeah. So, and and this is where I kind of draw back to. Sorry, my first point about the fact that it didn't have a specific call to action. But when watching the film, so I, I personally have seen this one, and I did get to the end of it, going, "Wow, we we should not be putting these intelligent, emotional animals in captivity." Um, and you, you do have a bit of a, a less positive feeling towards SeaWorld. So if you were, uh, so this takes place in um, California mm-hmm. SeaWorld, I think it is, or mm-hmm. San Diego, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, and if you were living in that area and you watched this film, you would not want to go and be associated with SeaWorld afterwards. So I, I do want to point out that um, we can't directly attribute the film to what we see, but we can't argue what we see mm-hmm. as well. So we did see a consistent drop in visitors and revenue that were going to SeaWorld. Um, SeaWorld has since discontinued their orca breeding program, which was an issue raised as quite questionable in the film that, you know, we have these animals that uh, Mm. are actually uh, injuring people and then you are breeding them to create more orcas. Um, And then recently, I think it was just this year, they discontinued the orca show itself, which was another questionable Mm. uh, practice on their behalf.
when I was reading your work on this, and we'll put, by the way, we'll, we'll put your article up on our website so that people can have a look in, at what you've written. But climate change and, and even food in some ways is, is, is a little bit abstract. When you've, got a, when you've got an orca, when you've got, you can sort of anthropomorphize uh, an animal in a way that you can't with climate change. And I'm just wondering mm. if that might have had some, some way of, I mean, the documentary filmmakers could do that so that the, the engagement, as you said, is much more, uh, you know, there is a personal engagement there, which you can't do with more abstract things. I'm, I'm wondering if you could mm. comment on that. Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head right there with that observation. So one of the things that we know is very successful um, outside of the documentary space, but looking more at um, social marketing or behavior change marketing is making an emotional and a personal connection with the feature person. So it's in, in the case of Blackfish, as you say, it worked really well because there was this one central animal or even the species that people were able to connect with and feel emotionally invested in. Emotion is mm. a very powerful tool in this media space. And as you say, it's kind of hard to do this in the areas of climate change or in even, even health and nutrition because we don't have someone to connect it to. Mm-hmm. Now, I think in terms of uh, an inconvenient truth, so the original one back in 2006, Al Gore tried to take on that role, and I think he was partly successful in that. So we saw him, we connected with him, he was, he was funny, he was engaging, and he really got us thinking about climate change. Um, In the second film, so an inconvenient sequel, we're following Al Gore again, but this time it feels like the focus of the film is really too much on Mm -hmm. the person and Mm -hmm. not enough Mm -hmm. on the issue. So Mm -hmm. I I walked out of that film feeling a lot of sympathy for Al Gore in the struggles that he's facing, Mm -hmm. but I didn't feel like it was then up to me to go and do something different. Mm, Very interesting. One of the things that you've said is that advocacy documentaries, as you've called them, should be coupled with other behavior change techniques to increase the chances of success. Just very briefly tell us what you mean by that. Oh, very quickly sum up. I received an article this week that illustrates this perfectly. It it literally does this. So it uh, sat people down to watch a documentary, but then it sent one group, group off with nothing, which is what we would traditionally see when you watch a documentary. You watch it, you walk away, and that's it. But with the other groups, it uh, the researchers gave them either a Facebook page that they that was associated with the film, they gave them uh, reminders and like an action plan for how they could change their behaviour in response to, I think it was uh, the marine environment, so more marine-friendly mm-hmm. behaviours, uh, and another group they gave an action sheet so that they could pin to their fridge. And they found that with those groups that they gave some sort of post-viewing material, their behaviour was sustained. Mm-hmm. It decreased a little bit um, after the, you know, immediately watching, everything went up quite a lot. And 10 weeks later, some of them decreased a little bit, some of them stayed nice and high. But the control group who just walked away, they decreased massively. That was a pre-recorded interview I did with Kim Borg. She's a research officer at Behaviour Works Australia, which is part of the Sustainable Development Institute at Monash University. All that information will be on our communication web communication mixdown website. 
And you can get that at 3cr.org.au.